thing about property management, it's fairly recession friendly. We tend to not be negatively impacted by a recession. It can actually be good for our business. In that sense, it's just a very safe business to be in. Then you can make money while you're sleeping and you're not going to have to earn every dollar, which is even better. Lisa Wise. I am the chief nester for Nest DC. We're a boutique property management company in Washington, DC. We manage really high quality homes in the district proper. So we focus on a lot of single family residences, uh, condos and spaces in co-ops. We also manage single family homes. Um, We focus on high density urban living environments. So You know, we look at neighborhoods where there's a lot of pedestrian traffic and uh, we focus on historic homes and spaces that attract people that will generally live in the space for two to three years. D.C. is a pretty transient place. So um, we have a pretty decent turnover rate to the extent that, you know, tenants come in, take good care of spaces and then they're gone in a few years so we can re-rent that space. We don't own any of the property ourselves. We work with clients who are often uh, foreign service or stationed overseas or in other places, and they're using their property in the district for investment income. So we've been able to aggregate that business um, and manage about 725 properties right now uh, or individual units. So that's one business I've got. I have uh, another business I'm the co-owner and co-founder of, which is Roost DC. And Roost is a sister company to Nest. Roost manages homeowner associations and condo associations, again, in the district. The difference between the two is uh, one, and first and foremost, we're an employee-owned company. So there are 15 employee owners of Roost DC. And Roost focuses on managing the governance aspects and the envelope aspects of the buildings that we work with. So we don't manage any of the units in the buildings, but we manage the buildings themselves. So right now, those are the two key endeavors. We've been in business respectively from 2008 for Nest, and we started Roost in about 2014, we incorporated. Okay. And so if we're talking about Nest DC, I mean, um, did you ever try getting into multifamily? And you're talking about you only work with people who hopefully are going to rent there for two or three years. Have you ever done it where it's been less than that? And can you tell us why you try to get to the two or three year people who will stay there? We do have some multifamily spaces. We have about 30 buildings that are multifamily. In terms of the timeline for or the sort of the life cycle of the tenant, it's really better for the owner or the, the ultimate landlord and for the tenant to have less turnover, more consistent for everyone involved. And while you know, we definitely capitalize and, and monetize the transition phase and the leasing phase. It's really best for the property, the tenant and the owner if tenants stay for a, a minimum of two years. And we find that's pretty typical because this marketplace is, it's just highly, highly transitional. That's why we focus in on that timeline for the most part. Okay. And can you tell us why you decided to go ahead and start Roost even though you're doing the Nest? Yeah, that's a great question. We were managing buildings uh, associations as Nest DC. It really, you know, wasn't a very strong focus for us. We were actually doing it when asked and really <laughs> begged to do it. There, there hadn't been a very good track record of building management companies in this city that would work with smaller associations, which is like associations in sort of the six to 30 unit range. I added some staff members at that time who had a really good background in building management and association management. And so we suddenly went from it being kind of a sideline to something that I think we had an in-house expertise in and something we could build on. So it it was clearly emerging as a revenue stream and option for us to expand the business. But at the same time, 
Every day I come to work, it's a dream job for me. And Nest has been uh, something I never anticipated having happen for me in life. And the advantages of owning your own business and all of the things that have come from it have been immeasurably rewarding for me. And I also know that because we're a service-based business, there's no way I would have been able to achieve what I have had it not been for the really committed staff members and team members that I had. So from the really from an early place as a company, when we started to see that we had sustainability in our near future, I wanted to create an opportunity for people to sort of have that co-ownership experience. But it didn't make sense for me at the time for many reasons to sort of slice up Nest. So rather than fold new owners into Nest, what we did was we teased out Roost as an employee-owned company that gave everyone that opportunity. And it worked out really beautifully. And it, it sort of uh, resolved a lot of the problems that exist in that particular market where you have high turnover rates on building managers, lack of enthusiasm and not a lot of teamwork. And the things that we see a lot of our clients really complain about when they're transitioning to new companies, we've kind of resolved that by having an employee ownership model that, you know, cultivates a totally different kind of buy-in and enthusiasm for the work. Yeah. Were you reading about a company that did that or how did you come up with the idea to do that? Just like Nest, we sort of made made it up. Um, I had a hunch, which is basically the way I've done everything for better or worse. And there have definitely been some worse uh, case scenarios with that strategy. I've always felt like doing good business gets more business, that giving things away is how you get what you ultimately want and need. And it's not necessarily a business model. It's a it's a philosophy to doing business. And I felt like the more I could reward the people around me and, and get them to buy in, um, the more successful we would be. And while it might not be what's right for my bottom line in a moment, for the long haul, I think it's probably what would lead to more exceptional growth and just better experiences for everybody. So we just, you know, we met with an attorney, talked to him about incorporating a new LLC and what kind of corporate structure we would need to do that. We talked to the staff a lot about whether they would be interested in pursuing it. Um, and we got a lot of buy-in and it just, it just clicked and we jumped on it and we really haven't looked back. Let's just compare like you versus another management company that does condo association or multi-unit buildings. Like I guess are those managers usually just paid straight base salary on another one and then over time they just build resentment and don't care and versus like yours who is employee owned, how kind of y'all manage it differently? There, well, there are two things that set us apart from all other management companies in the, in the condo association arena. And the, the first obviously is the employee ownership model, but the second is we work in, in teams. So there's a lot of crossover in terms of skill sets and role that we'll play. So each of us kind of has a subspecialty, but we're all able to get basic level management tackled for our buildings. The traditional model in this landscape is a portfolio management model where you'll have one person who is responsible for anywhere from 12 to 15 buildings, at least in the high density urban environment. So that one person is going to be responsible for making sure the annual meetings are happening, that, you know, the budget gets prepared, that the association dues are collected, um, so they're looking at the governance aspects, the financial aspects, and then when something goes wrong with the building, they're going to make sure that they coordinate the maintenance. And then larger issues like making sure roofs get replaced and things like that. And it's incredibly uncommon for someone to be just as good at roof replacement coordination as they are governance issues. Um, and what we find is that, you know, there's just lack of fluency in all of those things equally. So you have someone who's just never really going to be able to perform as well as you need and want them to. Um, but in our team, because we have a field director who's really on the ground all day, making sure that things like, you know, large scale um, roofing projects or window replacements or, you know, really complicated plumbing issues are being tackled with expertise that gives our buildings a sense of confidence and allows us to get things done the right way and 
reasonable time frame and not at the expense of some other element of the management process happening, like the budget getting done. The other problem with the portfolio management is you know, people get really burned out and everyone in business, regardless of what you're doing, needs a vacation and a break. But if if you're going on a vacation or a break means that 12 to 15 buildings that you're managing suddenly don't have any attention, you know, that's a vulnerability for your business that can be very damaging. And it's a vulnerability at the end of the day for the building. If something goes wrong and there's no one minding the store, it could be not just disruptive, but it could cause some serious financial and, and property damages. So our model allows for people to take time to back each other up, um, to make sure there's total coverage and to actually just do what we do as well as we can by giving people latitude to be expert in their area of focus. And so you're saying there are about 15 employees with Roost DC? Roost has about nine employees. Some of them, some of the owners are on the Nest side. Gotcha. And so what would a, like, a group ownership look like? Are they just getting X percent of the net income or how is that drawn up? It depends on how we want to um, distribute. So since we're really closing out our third year in business, we've had, I think we broke even last year. So we're probably going to still be flirting with some losses. As we start making money, as we, as we become profitable, Profitable. Um, it'll depend on what we'll do is we've guaranteed in our arrangement and our agreement that we will pay enough for people to meet any tax obligation that a profit triggers. But after that, it's up to the membership to decide how to distribute funds based on our obligations and growth plans and where we want to invest. Everybody has a certain number of shares and those shares have value based on the form, the valuation formula that we established when we incorporated the company. Well, yeah, I, I thought that was interesting. I mean, I didn't know that you had an employee side, you know, ownership model versus, like I said, is an SDC just you or do you have different types of owners in that, that as well? I own 95% of NestDC and my chief operating officer um, as of last year has 5%. There aren't plans to make that a regular thing. She's been with me for seven years and I wanted to make sure she had some ownership structure. Okay, gotcha. Since skin in the game. Yeah. Let's go ahead and um, I guess backtrack a little bit if you don't mind and tell us how you started in SDC, what you were doing beforehand, and what got you into the property management side. My property management journey started when I was in grad school and I bought a duplex, a 1893 Adobe duplex, and kind of automatically became a landlord. And I really enjoyed working with my hands. It was something that I liked since I was little. I liked really everything having to do with home repair and renovation. And I grew up in Idaho where that was a pretty common thing, people kind of always fixing up or fixing their houses. So it was pretty intuitive for me to uh, want to own something and then and then later rent that out. So I did that and then, you know, had tenants and then went to grad school. And, you know, I ended up pursuing a, a pretty nice, long and very rewarding career in, in the nonprofit landscape. So I worked for healthcare organizations in the sort of a COO role. And then I was the executive director for um, an environmental nonprofit. And in 2008, I just got really burned out of raising money, which is Ultimately, when you're in a senior senior leadership role for a nonprofit, raising money is essential. Yeah, your main um, thing that you do. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it was an educational organization, and I, I I honestly wasn't feeling like I was making a big difference, and the economy was just spiraling. And I felt like you know I'd always had this idea in the back of my mind that having a property management company that really cared about the tenant and the property was a totally different model. And over the years, I'd picked up a number of properties that I was managing on the side and owned myself and just really enjoyed being a landlord. I felt like I was able to offer people a great living experience and that made a difference for them every single day. So I was talking to a friend um, at the time, oh, still a very close friend. We've been friends for a long time and he's a landscape architect. And I said, you know, obviously his business wasn't booming in the recession. So I said, hey, you, you know, maybe we should start this 
business. And at, the, at a minimum, we can be kind of a, a side hustle. We can just have some extra cash every month. And I continued to do fundraising for another organization at the time for many years, actually, after we started Nest. And he said, yeah, the first thing he said, well, what else do you have besides property management? Because it sounded like such a terrible <laughs> field to be in. And in some ways, if it's done the way everyone else tends to like to do it, which is poorly, then it is a crappy field to be in. But we jumped in. We both had a lot of enthusiasm for doing something that was different, having a company that was really energetic and tech focused and inviting and community oriented. So we just sort of started from scratch and built a company that was really counter to what the industry had been doing all along, which is being customer oriented and focusing on a great living experience. And less so in that cash flow piece, feeling like, well, if we do all this right, then, then it, we'll grow and the company will do well. And we, you know, we definitely had some early traction and um, a lot of organic growth. Jim, who co-founded with me, was <laughs> incredibly social and really kind of magnetic. So everywhere he went, people were just really attracted to his energy. And so he was really good at kind of drumming up enthusiasm for what we we're doing. And I was kind of on the back end, making sure we got a website and, you know, could actually deliver systems wise on what we were doing. And it grew from there. It was very organic. And I, I never uh, had any strong expectations for what we would become. We just kept plugging away and, and being really freshly focused on doing our best work. And over time, you know, it really just got traction and we were able to find that sustainability point, which I knew would happen around it, you know, having about 200 properties under management. Um, and at that time, Jim had, you know, at the run 100 properties, Jim was like, oh, wow, this is uh, too hard. <laughs> um, I think just being someone who had always kind of had a freelance lifestyle, this was locking him in a way that he just didn't really want to do it, which was fine. And so I bought him out at that point and we kept going. And, you know, here we are today between the two companies that are 25 employees. And it's been incredibly rewarding. I, I finally got to quit that other job about four years ago. So, yeah. And where are you located? My company is in Singapore, but I live in uh, Malaysia right now. Cool. Yeah. So why did you decide to become a member? You know, it was really uh, by chance that I stumbled upon your podcast. Yours just popped up. I said, okay, let me just try. And I like your interview style. I thought you asked good questions and I learned a lot. It was quite in-depth. So you mentioned about Patreon that I can get certain benefits. So when I looked into it, I said, okay, why not? I have really honestly already spent a lot of money that I didn't get any return from. I said, why not? I mean, in this journey, there's a lot of things that I spend money on, like the courses I bought, whatever. I said, why not? I just be a member and I get to speak to you and perhaps I can learn by having a one-on-one -on -one with you. And how many units did you say about total? Do you... We have about 725 units that we manage. Well, you're talking about, I guess, buying your own duplex and managing some properties or initially. Did you get hurt in the recession at all and have any issues with those properties? Uh, no, and that's because I, I'm a buy and hold kind of girl. Yeah. And so, you know, I wasn't in a position where I needed to sell. And if that's the case, then, you know, you're kind of always in great shape. And the nice thing about property management is, you know, it's fairly recession friendly. So people who can't sell are going to rent. And then when people want to buy, a lot of those folks that are buying property are going to want to buy it for the sake of turning it into an investment. So we tend to not be negatively impacted by a recession. It can actually be good for our business. So in that sense, it's just a very safe business to be in. Was it all this in the D.C. area? No, actually, the property that, well... Uh, yes and no. So a number of the properties that I initially had uh, were back when I lived in Tucson. And I moved to DC in 2004. And I bought a house when I got here. And, and that house is still one of my favorites uh, to manage and rent out. And, and then over the years, acquired a, a few more here and there. So and I also dabbled in managing other people's property and enjoyed that as well. So that's sort of the heart of the origin story there. 
even back then, I, I mean, could you tell us, was Jim, was he in DC? He was the landscaping buddy that was kind of helping you manage or no? He and I were just really close friends. So around 2008 is when I sort of discussed that idea with him. But all the other management that I had done, I just did on my own. Gotcha. And so c- can you tell us about, I guess it seemed like that's kind of when it became more official. I mean, I don't know if you decided you started getting more employees to help manage. Can you tell us about those first experiences? And it just initially kind of started off as a side hustle and how, how you're able to grow it. It was actually pretty interesting. I mean, obviously, Jim and I were going to put in as much sweat equity as we needed to. Um, and I had I was working in an office space doing my sort of fundraising job. Um, and the agreement that I had with my uh, my boss there was that I would be starting this other company and I needed to have a lot of flexibility. And it was a part-time job and she was just fine with that. So, But another person, Rihanna Campbell, who was working for that healthcare organization that we're both working with, was also part-time. And I asked her once what she was doing in her, other, in her spare time. And she said, oh, I'm doing some property management work, which was really weird, right? So the person that I'm, my office is adjacent to hers and we're both doing property management on the side. So one day, you know, I, Jim and I realized that we like, we just couldn't keep up with the, the pace of the work that was coming along. And, and we just weren't, to be honest, our aptitude for certain things was, was low, particularly on the finance and, and organizational side. So I asked Rihanna if she was enjoying her own portfolio and whether she had any interest in doing just a little bit of work for us, like 10 hours a week. Uh, and I think she find, she was sort of finding her own property management side hustle was kind of lonely without a partner. So she jettisoned her stuff and, and kind of jumped on board 10 hours a week and probably did 30 hours a week. And there was a lot of split equity there. Um, and so she was our first official hire the first one to get paid. And she was on board for, I think, about a year when we realized, okay, now we need to have another part-time hire. And and on came Laura Vandegein, who was uh, like straight out of college. Um, we had a phone interview with her. And before she was through the second sentence, I already knew she'd be a great fit. And she came in that day, <laughs> started doing work for us at 12 hours a week. And then by the end of the second week, she was 40 hours a week. So that's that's where it started. We're super close knit. Uh, Rihanna is still with me and Laura went off to get an MBA and I'm still hoping one day she will come back. Um, and Jim visits often. So I think we made a good investment in the right people. Um, and we still have uh, a number of people that joined us right around that time who are still with the company. So it's been a great growth in terms of personnel and talent. And we have a lot of longevity, which has been really a great thing about the company. Well, could you tell us what your day to day was like then compared to what you do now and that time? span of how you slowly kept hiring? Yeah. I mean, the day to day was really, I did everything from like making sure that toilets got repaired and sometimes repairing them myself (laughs) to, you know, business development, like going to sales meetings. I would spend lots of time on the weekends. We have this, uh, we have a gift bag that we sort of pop a marketing gift bag, which had an organic cleaner that we make this secret recipe, right? And these tote bags, and I would go to um, I would go to open houses, real estate open houses, all weekend long, and just talk to people about our property management services. And because we don't do sales, and we never will, they were really receptive and bored at their open houses because that's when nothing was selling. So um, I got a chance to get FaceTime with all these real estate agents. So I was out there, like just kind of hitting the pavement all the time, trying to get people to focus on being kind of a new management company in the in the field and on the scene. And that worked out really well. Jim did a lot of that. We did a lot of showings and leasings. And there was a lot of time and energy spent in just trying to figure out like how we organize our work. How are we going to do you know, it's one thing when you have 10 statements monthly to put together, but it's totally different dynamic when you have 50 and then a really different dynamic when you have 200. So a lot of our effort was in 
delivering that day-to-day client experience, showings and being on the phone and doing sales meetings and executing leases and getting people moved in and getting spaces ready for rent. Um, but also on the back end and operational side, it's like, how do we organize our escrow accounts or, you know, make sure that we're billing for maintenance? So we started doing a lot of proprietary software solution investigation, meeting with, you know, our, our insurance companies and accountants and, and tr- trying to get, get legit uh, without having any resources to do so in a way. And I still do a lot of that. Uh, I don't do any, to be honest, a lot of the, the, the nest work has grown to the point where like we're kind of a finely oiled machine and I have a really exceptional, uh, staff on the nest team. So I do a lot of strategy and, and still do continued business development on that side. But most of my energy is spent on the roost side right now, doing kind of what we were doing at this stage of the Nest business plan. So, I mean, there are days when I'm reaching out and, and telling people like, oh, okay, if we need to get to the cable box, it's, in, you know, it's on the, it's on the rear side of the building or the trash dumpster. <laughs> so there's still a lot of that just day to day tactical stuff that I'm doing to make sure that the client experience is good. And as we grow and establish sound systems, we'll be able to move me to a point where I'm again, working more on the business development and the strategy side. But there's always, there's always some drama or fire or flood that we could spend all of our time and energy on in this business. Mm-hmm. Well, you were talking about like proprietary software that you're having something develop. Can you tell us what that might've been and why you felt the need to do that? We ended up moving toward Appfolio, which is a Citrix-based system. It was really in its infancy uh, in 2009 when we moved to that tool. And it's really an accounting-based platform with a clearinghouse for all the information that we need to manage property effectively. It's a great tool that just gets better all the time. Um, and we've been on a lot of technology tool journeys over time, particularly on the roof side. But going all in on Appfolio was a pretty big game changer for us. The property management field on the whole has been not particularly enthusiastic about modernizing. And it's a very paper heavy, data heavy and intensive field. And I think because of that, people just, it's a major effort to um, invest in a new tool or, or change the way that you're doing things, particularly because there's so much happening in real time. You often can't get to the things that, you know, are going to make sure that you're, you're more solidly performing long term. I'm glad that we were able to work with the software that helped us be as kind of um, nimble as possible. And it's it's something that a lot of our competitors still don't have a good software solution for their management. Well, could you give us an example of maybe like before and after what you were doing or what you would try doing, I guess, before Appfolio, if that was your biggest game changer? I mean, we had a QuickBooks file for every single property. So bad, right? I yeah, mean, it hurts to think about. Yeah. Um, and then Excel spreadsheets and just all of this like really manual data entry. You know, you were just opening yourself up for so many mistakes. It's impossible for that much data entry to happen effectively um, and to time things well. So we didn't have ACH transfers available. So we were like, literally, I had a number of clients. I was dropping checks off once a month to them at their door. Not the best way uh, to get people their payments. We had, you know, even a key system, like we had literally a box full of keys. It was so poorly organized. I mean, you just, the box was probably great when we had five properties because we knew they were all in one place. But when you've got 50 and you've got a box full of keys, you're like, oh my God, this is a a train wreck. Uh, And we kept hitting those points and we still do, to be honest. I mean, you're going to, realize that you have these systems that are just really impossible to sustain over time. But another was, you know, doing a bill pay for our associations. We had all the bills come to us. 
Well, you have 70 associations you're managing, you have 70 water bills to pay and you're paying them by check. Just paying water bills becomes this, you know, it's really time intensive process. Even opening the mail becomes a time intensive process. So we had to rethink that and then move to a, a bill pay service for us where they receive all that stuff. So you have to stop and ask yourself, is there a better technology investment that I can be making right now that's going to take this manual effort away from us and into the hands of someone who's just focusing on that. But if we had tried to stay, you know, using some weird configuration of Google Docs and Dropbox and, you know, uh, some other kind of database, it just, those systems will just crush you over. They'll, they'll fall apart and you'll be crushed underneath them. I mean, is that what you did at one point? I mean, can you give us an example of, you know, maybe where you tried some software, y'all were trying to switch to it, and then it didn't end up being the right thing? Definitely. Um, we, especially on the Roost side, we had some really, really drastic, uh, very time-consuming transitions to tools that over-promised and not even under-delivered, but just couldn't deliver. Right. And then me going out and telling our clients, oh, this is going to be great. We're going to have this really sophisticated new tool that can contact, you know, tenants in any language. And like, and then not realizing that that's actually all the system could do. <laughs> it couldn't actually fill any of the, the baseline functionality that we needed it to. And so transitioning back and forth and back and forth. And luckily, on the association management side, Appfolio has introduced a, an association management tool. So we're <laughs> after all those journeys, we're back to Appfolio on the Roost side as well. And we could not be happier. Could you tell us about any other obstacles you've had to overcome during, I guess, journey of making these two businesses? Either if there's a time that you thought you might not make it or, I guess, you know, bad hire or it sounds like, which is a great thing with your partnership that ended amicably because most of the time it doesn't sound like we hear that either. Yeah, no, I think we have been really fortunate that way. I think for us, it was hard to really understand how much risk we were taking, even though we sort of assumed we weren't. There's so many fair housing laws. There are so many laws that sort of govern this particular jurisdiction in DC that it's kind of a dicey space to be in and there you're really exposed. And I think we, we had a couple lawsuits in the last five years that certainly didn't derail us, but they demoralized us <laughs> because I think the hardest thing for our business has always been to reconcile the fact that we have such a a great enthusiasm for what we're doing and we couldn't care more about it, to be honest. And then to have someone come after us over something is um, just really hard for our team. And we take things really personally. And I think that's always been um, kind of our greatest strength and greatest weakness at the same time. Because it's, you know, because we care so much about what we're doing uh, and our intention is always 100% there that when someone comes after you because they said you didn't, you know, tell them that the project was going to be delayed two weeks. And so now they want, you know, all their money back for, for the for some project that actually went just fine. That stuff's hard. So, you know, it's I think we're a little bit too naive and expect the best from everyone because I think we really go out there with our best. And that's been a really hard, hard part of the business. And frankly, like people are just mean. mean. <laughs> I hate to say that, but, you know, we're dealing with people at their worst and they're moving or they're waiting to see whether or not someone's going to you know, pay them. And we just get caught in the crosshairs a lot of times and we try and be as patient as possible. But there have been many tears shed over people that, you know, call and demand that if their cable isn't installed today, right this minute, that they're going <laughs> to sue us or something. It's like, oh, really? That's too bad. Don't you have Netflix or something? I mean, it's 
it's hard to it's hard to be sort of on that the receiving end of people being so um, sometimes venomous and when what we're trying to do is be as empathic as possible. I, and I think because this reputation, this business does have such a, a well-earned and justified bad reputation that people don't expect us to be empathic or understanding or want to help them. So they just start out in their worst place, expecting to have to stay there to get their needs met. So it's hard. You have to have some thick skin, but we also don't want to be thick skinned and not care. So that's the, I think that's been one of the biggest challenges with the business. Yeah. So what have you thought of our group calls so far? I like the group call so far. I like how insightful it is. And it's kind of an extension of your interviews. That's how it feels. And I think that if anybody has a real project they're working on, they can benefit a lot from it. One thing that made me want to join was when you shared the first group call. And I heard that episode. I'm like, this is a nice little community. It's friendly. It's genuine. And so that was helpful. I mean, that's where I hear from a lot of commercial real estate owners, maybe in the self-storage side or also like the mobile home park space where they actually only only own the land and they're renting lots. Like, Because when you're doing multifamily or single family residential, the, the laws are all for the tenant, right? So no matter what you do, it seems like that, that's the hardest thing for a person who actually owns a property to take care of something, whether they're going to stay there for free rent for three or six months or whatever. So um, yeah. with that, I mean, have you thought about expanding more into the commercial side because of that because usually you don't have those it seems like as many instances yeah i mean the the per, over personalizing things on the commercial side really doesn't happen as much and we won't say we won't move into that space by any stretch i think what we want to do right now is really try and cultivate as much business as we can in our sweet spot um on both the roost and the nest side i know you know we're also in the in the midst of just about getting ready to launch a third brand um that we'll focus on uh, light renovation and getting spaces rent ready. So I think when we have that little trio of businesses operating really smoothly, then from there we can see how much further we can take things. It seems to be in a space that's like, there's an infinite, infinite amount of growth potential. And we've had people say, you know, who's your competition? And I, I kind of always argue, like, it, it's really, it doesn't matter. I mean, there are 160,000 rentals in DC alone. I think there's plenty of business for everybody. So I want people to make the right choice for them. But I think, you know, it's always interesting for us to ask ourselves, like, should we be moving into another space or do we really just occupy the space that we're in now as well as we can and grow from there? Yeah, I mean, I only brought that up because I, I could imagine some of those stories where, you know, you're trying your, your hardest and then getting sued from the tenant. Uh, I could see, just see that that frustration building up where you're wondering if it's worth being in this, you know, product type where you're dealing with the, those type of people. So that's what bring it up, you know. Oh, well, sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, so I mean, was there as far as like turning points in the company? You said it seemed like you were doing it part time at first. When did you decide when you're going to go ahead and do it full time? I mean, what was there? You're making X amount of money. Um, or you saw more growth potential. Can you tell us about that? So if someone was like, you know, starting their side company when they felt comfortable enough to start their own? Yeah, that's a good question. I kind of knew in my gut when we started things that if we had 200 units under management, I would be able to make enough salary to cover my mortgage and, you know, take care of my family. You know, obviously not save, but at least be in a pretty consistent place. And, and I also wanted to make sure that we had enough benefits available so that everybody had, you know, healthcare and things like that. Um, so when we got to that place, I was willing to take a, a pay cut and, um, you know, go, go all in on, on Nest. And, and my having two jobs was probably the best thing I could have done for the company because not getting paid by Nest meant that we could hire more staff members to deliver on all these promises that I was making and offer that ex exceptional, you know, service that, you know, that I promised we could, we could deliver on. So, but at that 200 units, I knew that 
that I could make that transition. And I phased myself out. So the other job, I was, I went from sort of three days a week, and then I went to two days a week, and then I went to one, and then finally I'm like, okay, I'm ready to take the plunge and just have you know, one job for a change. But, you know, I, and every, you know, you sort of ask, if you ever feel like there was a point at which you wouldn't make it? And I, I always felt like, you know, in February, nobody wants to move or lease anything. And I'm like, oh my God, why did I start this business? Every February, I feel that way. So even though it's obviously it's not, obviously that's not realistic anymore. Of course, the business is going to be fine. I know August would be good, but you know, for a long time, you don't have trends. DC is funny because you've got this whole political scene and people coming and going based on who's in office and elections. And, you know, we had one, you know, we had one congressional session that, uh, you know, there were a lot of congressional races, house races, and it was just crickets. And I was super panicked about whether we were going to hit our leasing goals for the, for many months in a row. And then the November elections happened and boom. And that was a few years ago. You're talking about family on the personal side, because it sounds like you were on the weekends also trying to promote the company. Could you talk to us about that? I mean, was there ever a strain where you're overworking too much and realized, you know, maybe I shouldn't mean I need to make another hire or anything like that? That was how I felt every single day. And I honestly, I still feel like that sometimes every single day. There was a lot of, I think, understandable tension in my household about the amount of time and energy I spent on the company. It was just constant constant energy spent working. Um, and I've definitely uh, come back from a place where I feel like I need to be working all the time. Um, but I also feel like I could be. So <laughs> my life is a little bit more balanced, which is good. But there were just many, many years where like there was, I, it, it couldn't do enough. Um, there was always something more we could be doing to grow the business and to, you know, make sure that we were doing our best work. And, and with each hire, it seemed like we we're five minutes away from needing another person. So, and I, I think if, I think we'll probably be in that space for a long time. And, and honestly, I think that it's less so me feeling that way and more so some of my colleagues, my chief executive officer for Nest is, I think, kind of on the verge a lot because she's really trying to sort of rebuild a lot of our systems and, and get a lot of our, our cultural elements set in stone. And I think she's just got a really full plate. And I think she's feeling like, okay, we got to hire somebody new. So I think the that legacy, <laughs> the total commitment legacy has been passed on to some of my um, senior team members. And they're feeling the, the pressure to just sort of like, wow, it just seems like we could always be doing something. And I, I don't think that there's anybody that's bitter about it at all. It's I think it's this, a sign of us being really successful. It's just a matter of kind of also knowing like, when is it time for us to bring more talent in the door? And, and also, I think that one of the hardest things to understand as a company are we bringing talent in because we're not being efficient or we bringing talent in because we have more work. And I think we got really good a few years ago at saying like, we're obligated to make sure we're as efficient as possible so that we're not just paying another person to be inefficient. Could you expand on that? How did you figure that out at some point when maybe you were over hiring? I mean, I, I don't know if, if we were necessarily over hiring, but we were hiring into crappy systems. So, and not always paying attention to what the tools were able to do for us. So for example, you know, Appfolio had introduced a tool where you could have people ratify leases online and yet we weren't doing that. So, you know, we have people coming to the offices all the time or running leases out or we're printing leases. And it was, just, it was like a lease explosion. It was like an avalanche of paper and people losing stuff. It's just sort of to finally, you, you know, you stop for a minute and you're like, half the things we're doing are taking longer than they should. And we just can't afford to do that anymore. 
even populating the property pages, if they don't all have consistent information, the information is not accurate, then why bother using the tool at all? So we had to, there have been many times as a company when we really just stopped doing our work for long enough to say like, what's working and what's not working, even on the client side. I remember a day when I came into the office and we've been bitching about, you know, some guy, it's just, he, <laughs> he had um, a rabid raccoon break into his house <laughs> from a, chimney and like bleed everywhere around this house. And we had to, um, we had to have like a hazmat guy clean it. Right. And he didn't want to pay the bill, you know? And of course, you know, our contract allows for us to do that. It's like this impossible situation because they want us to be, you know, a bad landlord. And that's just completely counter to who we are as a company. And so just so much frustration and constant conversation with a stupid rabid raccoon and how the, the girls in that house locked themselves in the bathroom. It was, hilarious. it was hilarious. But, and that day I just, I gave everybody a piece of paper at the staff meeting and I said, write down the clients that you want to fire. And then I captured all the pieces of paper and we fired every single one of those clients because they took way more time than they needed to. They were they weren't revenue streams. They were stress causers. And I think it's those points when we're like, we just have to get smarter about this. Not every dollar is worth it. So if you have to earn the dollar five times, then it's not worth it. It doesn't spend right. So those are, you know, some examples of just, you know, why are why are we doing it this way? Why are we triple entering this data or, you know, printing this or that? Or why are we we kept doing these inspections and we have an inspector go out and they just you know, check every box. I'm like, well, what does a check mark mean? <laughs> does it mean that the kitchen is still there? I mean, this is not very informative. So I think we just, you know, we force ourselves to get better and better all the time at that stuff and and reminding ourselves that you don't finish that task. You have to go back into uh, that process over and over again and say, hey, is the system falling apart now? When do we revise it? Um, the bigger you get, the more strange your system will be. And you have to go back and revisit it all the time. For you, was it just like every once in a while, once you see those expenses keep going up or you see something taking too much time, you just reach a kind of, you know, a boiling point where you're like, okay, this is just taking way too long that, and that's when you decide you have to go back and look at your systems? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't know if it's every week you're looking at every month, you know, if there's only certain people or if it's just, you know. it's pretty con. It's, I think it's all of us. I think, you know, our theme, we have sort of a themes every year. Um, and I think one of our themes this year is to be as innovative as possible. And that innovation just means, you know, focus on efficiency and excellence at the same time. So we've been doing paper inspections. We go and inspect the single family homes that we've got. We've been doing paper inspections and then we PDF them and then we send them out and then we put them in the person's portal. And for three years, there's been an online inspection form through Appfolio. We just hadn't taken the time to learn how to use it well and customize it. So, you know, at that point, I'm like, we have to stop we have to stop using systems that don't work as well for us. And they worked great. That was a fine system when we had 10 uh, houses to look at, but we have 250 houses. So, you know, forcing ourselves to stop for a minute and say, hey, is there a better way of doing this? I think not only me being the one doing that, but constantly encouraging everyone to have some ownership over whether we're doing things the way that they really should and could be done in a scalable way. There's so many things that we've been doing over time. It's just, it's not scalable. Well, do you think now with Roost DC, I mean, do, do you feel like that's been happening more and more where the employees are taking more ownership and looking at those efficiencies since they're co-owners versus Nest? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I, I've, I've always felt with, with Nest, we've had that family. There's always been a very familial way of working to, together and looking at the work, but the genuine ownership model really does change how people want to approach the work on the roof side. And when we say like, okay, listen, we've got to, we have to switch, we have to switch the system again. We have to transition all of our buildings out of this crappy tool and into the tool that we actually know is going to be good. We just go all in and do it. And 
instead of just sort of hating on that concept, we just get it done because we know the value in doing so. And could, I mean, have you just noticed kind of like night, night and day, maybe the people who have transitioned over as far as, you know, how involved they are in the company? For our clients? Oh, oh no, not for your clients, just the employee ownership model. Because I'm just thinking if someone's listening, you, you know, and maybe they're thinking about doing something like this. I mean, what type of advice you have and, you know, the benefits that you've seen and, and maybe some of the negatives. Yeah, I think in a service-based environment, an employee ownership model is clutch. It really goes a long way in terms of selling people on the idea that the people that you're going to be working with are invested and committed in, in their work. Um, and you, it's just really rare to have that be the case. I mean, you've got a lot of companies where the, the family ownership model is a strong one, but it's incredibly rare to see one that's employee. And I think it offers an edge, to be honest. I think it, it goes a long way to establishing a reputation in the city as being really different uh, in a good way. It's also... You know, I feel allowed to have higher expectations for my team because they're earning money. I mean, all their shares are worth much more than they paid for them, which makes them very happy. It makes me happy for them. You know, you feel like you're doing better business when you've got people on your team that are co-owners. It's just a, it's, it just makes the work more fun and, it, and more rewarding. And I, I think that that will, that definitely comes across to the client. I used to, to be a radio announcer when I was in college and the rule of thumb was you need to sit up and, and smile when you're talking into the mic and, and all of those things really sort of play off for the audience. And I think the same is true when you've got people really bought into the work. That's going to come across very differently than someone that's like, okay, fine, I'll send someone to look at your roof when they can. So it's a confidence building tool. And, and I, and I think it's a model that can be replicated. I'd like to see a lot more companies do this. Um, but I honestly don't know of any. I mean, I think my favorite interviews you've ever had are the ones where you've bleeped out their name. I think there was two of them where they were just absolute fails. Yeah, the two Patreon episodes, I think it was number two and then yeah. 17 that just came out recently. It was just like the oddest interaction ever. It was awkward and super, super entertaining. Yeah, well, good. Well, God, I got two entertaining Patreon ones there for you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I said in kind of closing, any advice that you might have for someone who maybe starting their own company or maybe even starting their own management company to be more specific or lessons might you want to leave with us? And what's the best way for us to contact you if you want to say thank you? Yeah. Well, I enjoyed this conversation. It's really fun to talk about our work. I think for anybody going into a management model and, and I think investing in the right technology, treating your employees as well as you possibly can, they're your talent and they're your frontline and honoring the employee before the dollar is, is the right way to go. Taking care of people in places before thinking about the bottom line is going to get you where you want to go. Now, not every dollar is worth it. Uh, and if you're doing your job well and you've cultivated and curated a really strong portfolio of good property, then you can make money while you're sleeping and you're not going to have to earn every dollar, which is even better. So taking mediocre property or property where an owner doesn't want to maintain it properly, the losing proposition because you look bad, the property looks bad, and the tenants aren't going to have a good experience and, and nobody wants that. Uh, it's not profitable. It may be for somebody, but it certainly isn't for us. And care about your community. I've always felt that you know, we have a unique opportunity as business owners to make an impact in the, in the city and communities that we live in. So instead of paying for marketing, you know, make donations to organizations that you care about um, and your reputation and visibility will grow as much, if not much more than it would if you took an ad out on Facebook. So those are just a handful of tips that I have uh, and certainly things that we've done that I've been happy for. And on the software side, I wish I'd done sooner. And after that, I'm very easily reachable at, at my email address, which is lisa at nest dash dc.com always happy to connect with people that are interested in our work 
and um, we'll love to hear back from people. Well, uh, thank you, Lisa, for coming on and sharing your story with us. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. All right. You have a great one. You too. What are you thankful for this holiday season? If it's Millionaire Interviews, then would you mind doing us a favor so we can keep the show going? The only way we can keep it going is by increasing our subscriber count. So just take a minute and think about someone who would love to listen to this podcast as well. Now go ahead and send them a text. And before you press send, add this link to your message, millionaire-interviews.com forward slash subscribe. It'll redirect them to the podcast app so they can subscribe within, I don't know, six to nine seconds. We'd really appreciate it again if you share it with somebody because we can't keep it going without you and other listeners. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, you might like Patreon episode number three, where I talked with Rick Martinez about how to get funding and be successful in the cannabis industry. Or try Patreon episode number five, where I talk with U.S. Army veteran Jeff Palmero about how he's able to grow a successful software business after fighting in Iraq. And last but not least, try Patreon episode number six, where I dive further in detail with Chad Patel on how to quickly build a successful mobile app without breaking the bank.